So welcome everyone to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. Very nice to have you here again this week. And we are up to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 19. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 19. And the verse reads, Sincere charity brings life, but one who pursues evil is consigned to death, or leads to death. So sincere charity brings life, but one who pursues, pursues evil is consigned to, or leads to, his death. So, what are the questions we might ask about that verse? Sincere charity brings life, but one who pursues evil is consigned to his death. Any thoughts about what the questions would be that we should be asking around that? Ah, Naomi, very good. <laughs> yes, I do see. Thank you for getting up so early for this class. What is sincere charity? I mean, why didn't King Solomon just say charity brings life? Why do you say sincere charity and what is that? So, good question. We'll need to understand the difference between that and regular charity. Okay, and yeah, Pamela, you've, you've brought up an issue that relates, I think, to a verse that we did before, uh, where charity or tzedakah is supposed to deliver from death. So... Why is he saying here that sincere charity brings life? Uh, and Naomi, we're in chapter 11 and verse 19. So Proverbs 11, verse 19. Sincere charity brings life, but one who pursues evil is consigned to death. So, I think, Pamela, you've alluded to another of our questions. In addition to defining what's sincere charity, we'd like to know, well, how does that bring life? And, and what do we mean by that anyway? I mean, we're all alive. So, you know, what's the difference? What, what is King Solomon talking about when he says brings life? And then, why is one who pursues evil consigned to death? And, and further, we could ask, well, what's the subject of the verse altogether? I mean, these two parts don't particularly seem to relate to each other. We're talking about sincere charity on the one hand, and then a person who pursues evil, which doesn't seem to be the opposite of that. Very often these verses are opposites of one another. Um, so what's, what's King Solomon trying to get uh, to us? And, and Naomi, good, both are connected to life. Yep, we'll, uh, and I think we'll soon see how that connects into this. And Pamela, you mentioned there are levels of charity and levels of motives. Very good. So let's talk about charity first. You can write out a check, a bank check for charity, and you can think that that's it. Uh, in other words, you can go through what we could call the halakhic motions, the legal motion of giving charity, and actually do it without having it affect you at all. It's like, ah, I just pulled some money out of my pocket, or I wrote a check out of my checkbook, and I gave it to somebody. 
I will suggest that King Solomon is not talking about that kind of charity in this case. Uh, I, and I think that's why he uses the term sincere charity. And I'm going to suggest that sincere charity is charity where the giver fully understands the reason behind the charity. Okay. Yeah, Pamela, uh, it's, it's, when your heart goes out to someone, that's a very good point. When your heart goes out to someone, what is actually happening in that situation? What is happening to you in regards to that other person? Let's think about that for a minute. It's a very important point you brought up, and it's going to, I think, relate to what King Solomon is trying to teach us. Yes, now it's when you have your heart in, in the right place, but we want to define kind of what that right place is. And, and Pamela, you indicated you're, you're suffering with them. Yeah, but you're vicariously living. In other words, you understand, you are identifying with the situation that that person is in. You recognize that it's not just that they're a lower life form or they're someone else, but you recognize kind of a bigger picture here, that each of us is in a particular station or situation in life, and it could be much, you know, worse, it could be different, um, and the other people who have uh, maybe more difficult circumstances are people just like us. It's not that we're better, um, it's that we recognize uh, kind of our place in the world, and that there's a system here, and that we are just one member of that system. So the person who is giving because he fully understands the reason behind the charity isn't giving because he has to. He has a completely, or she has a completely different mindset. He or she is giving because they understand their place in the world. They are a member of the system of humanity, and that system, the way God set it up, involves charity. So that person will not see it as a sacrifice that he has to give charity, or gee, I'm giving up something I could have had, but rather he sees the money that he devotes to charity as the contribution that he's been given the responsibility to give to others. So he sees himself as part of the whole system. It's not a self-centered thing for him. It's a full understanding of being part of God's system and participating in that system. Okay? Does that make sense? Any, any questions about that? Just to get that, that point on the table. Okay, let me wait, Diane, because it looks like you're writing a, something Yeah, so, okay, so you mentioned someone who's outwardly righteous but may have thoughts that are perverse. That's true, and it, a, a person who gives a lot of money but, you know, does it internally, outwardly they put on a great face, but internally it's very grudgingly and they wish they didn't have to and they wish all those people would, you know, uh, go away or whatever. That person doesn't fully see the ideas. Um, when, when the person sees the full ideas, then they'll recognize that they are just a part of the system um, and 
a, a contributor to it. They've been given, we've all, to the degree that we have income, we have an obligation to give charity. That's the part of what Hashem has provided us that we turn around uh, and give to others. So if that's sincere charity, now we've got to take the next step and ask, well, how does that bring life? And I'll suggest that because the one who gives sincere charity understands his true place in the world, then he has a completely different outlook than the man who is self-centered. That outlook brings him a richer experience in life because he sees his place in reality clearly. That outlook in and of itself can reduce conflicts and thus bring more life to this person. He'll have a richer and more stress-free life because of his outlook. I mean, King Solomon, when he wrote Sincere Charity Brings Life, can't be meaning life literally because we all have that whether we give charity or not. But I think he's talking about uh, what we could call true essence of life, you know, real life, really enjoying life. You know, everybody who's alive on the planet lives, but how many of them really live life fully and fully appreciate it and are experiencing it in the richest way possible. So there's, there's the idea of life as being alive or dead, literally, and then there's the idea of life, you know, in terms of the quality of the life that you have. For example, a righteous person is going to have a higher quality of life than a wicked person could ever have because of the knowledge and the understanding they have and the lack of conflicts that they will have because uh, of the life they lead. Okay, and Shalom, Terry and Lori. Uh, great to have you with us. We are in Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verse 19. Chapter 11, verse 19. So, that's a start for the first half. That sincere charity is going to bring life to the person because they will fully understand the mindset, or have a mindset that understands their real place in the world and that mindset, that approach to life, will bring about uh, a richer quality of life for them uh, than would otherwise take place. That's why, again, I think that King Solomon says sincere charity and not just charity, because if all you did was charity, just the act, then you wouldn't necessarily have the richness that comes with the understanding. But the sincerity of the charity implies I really understand what this is about and why I'm doing it, and I'm doing it because of that understanding, not because I'm forced to do so. So, now let's take a look at the second hand. It says, one who pursues evil is consigned to his death. So, how does that work? Anyone have any ideas about how that might, how we might see that be true in, in the practical world. Basically, he who pursues evil is consigned to his death. How would that come about? What do you think? pursues evil is consigned to his death actually work. 
Okay, Pamela, he's not interested in transforming himself. Okay, so he's stuck. He's pursuing evil. He's in a lifestyle that is not going to be productive for him. And so that's going to cause difficulty. Uh, and Diane, yes, I think we're talking about someone who's constantly causing pain to others. And so he is living an unrealistic life. I mean, his life is centered around a very incorrect outlook. He's centered on his emotions, on doing evil acts, uh, harming other people, acts of violence, domination, power over others, focused on the physical pleasures, putting others down, theft, and so on and so on. So we know from our previous studies that there are consequences to that kind of life. I mean, the evil person risks... <clears throat> making grave and harmful, even potentially fatal mistakes. And he's going to earn the distrust of others along the way. Um, he may be viewed by other people as an evil person, and that itself is going to bring forth its own set of consequences. Plus, the evil person's desires, because they're unrealistic, will never be fulfilled. So the evil person is constantly in a state of conflict. He's in conflict with reality. Now when it talks about he who pursues evil is consigned to his death, again, like the life part, we could look at that and say, well, what is King Solomon saying? Because everybody dies. So King Solomon can't be referring to just normal death. And so I'll suggest that death here is being used as a metaphor for the wrong life, essentially, which can ultimately lead to premature death. And you've kind of got this going on two levels. One level is that uh, he makes mistakes that can cause his untimely death. He makes enough people mad at him that somebody, you know, takes him out or he calculates things wrong and ends up in a situation that causes his actual physical death. A lot of possibilities because he is not thinking through life on a realistic basis um, and making rational choices. The other aspect is that um, he's constantly in conflict because his desires are going against reality. And so the quality of the life he has is going to be so bad, it's, you know, like being consigned to death. So there's a couple of different ways that, that we could look at this. Um, <clears throat> and it appears that the verse must be referring, if we take it literally, to premature death, which is a way of referring to the consequences of operating improperly in life. Now, an interesting uh, side point, and let me pause just a minute, and Pamela, you're right, they don't believe it will bring death. In fact, they don't even realize that they're living uh, an improper life because they're just caught up in the stuff that they're caught up in, and they haven't been trained to use their intellectual capability to analyze their life and figure out, wait a minute, this isn't working, and maybe I should try something different uh, you know, that will work. It's interesting to think about the idea of an evil person. 
one who pursues evil. Uh, what do you think the definition of evil is? If you had to define that, how would you define evil? Any thoughts on that? It's a term we use all the time, but sometimes, you know, we maybe people in our in the American society tend to think of you know villains in Stephen King novels. Um, okay, good. Pamela and Diane, you're saying basically the same thing, contrary to Torah or anything that goes against Hashem's laws. Sajigan was one of the great sages. And he had a very interesting definition of evil. He said, evil is ignorance. Evil is ignorance. Which is very, very different from the sort of boogeyman idea uh, or the, the kinds of things you get out of horror movies. His view is if a person is operating ignorantly, that is defined as evil. And this makes sense as we think about it because the ignorant person is not operating on the basis of wisdom and knowledge. If he was, he wouldn't be ignorant. So since he is ignorant, he has to be operating on something else. And since that something else isn't wisdom and knowledge, then by definition he's bound to get negative consequences. So the second half seems to be referring to the ultimate consequences of a life spent pursuing evil. Okay, any questions on that half? If you're, if you're focused on evil, if you're pursuing evil, you're going to get the consequences. Ultimately, that will lead to your death and certainly to... Uh, a lower quality of life. Now, if that's the case, what's the subject of the verse? Well, the first half is telling us that a person who practices sincere charity, that is, they don't just do the act, but they understand the philosophy behind the act, that person will have life. The second half is telling us that the person who pursues evil will have premature death. So the subject of the verse seems to be the consequences of one's outlook on life, which is life for those who practice sincere charity and understand their place in the world, and death for those who practice evil actions. Interestingly, about this particular verse, the Rabbeinu Yonah says, and I'm quoting from the Art Scroll book on Proverbs, just as charity definitely brings life, so will one who pursues evil be pursued by that very evil onto death. Pursuing evil refers to one who constantly seeks opportunities to harm others. So that's the way he views that. So the contrast here is one who does charity, a positive act for others for its own sake, not for himself, but because he knows this is good for the other, but that person is going to have a life, while one who constantly looks for opportunity to harm others, he'll get death as a result. The first person has a very realistic outlook on life, sees the truth, operates in accordance with it, and does good for others, while the evil person is self-centered, driven by his emotions, operates on the basis of a flawed outlook on life, 
and seeks to harm others. So it's a completely different outlook on life between the person in the first half and the person in the second half. Okay, any questions on that? Naomi, you wrote uh, both uh, are going to life. I'm uh, not sure which part you were referring to there. You can elaborate for me, that will help. Any other questions on this verse? pause because I see a couple of you writing things on the screen. Ah, Naomi, good question. If a person changes in between, then the decree changes. Well, yes, but let's be careful about, uh, I, I guess I want to be careful about how we use the term decree. If an evil person is doing evil stuff and realizes maybe after, I don't know, five years of doing evil stuff, hey, wait a minute, this isn't the right way to live, <clears throat> and repents and goes and clears up all the evil that he did <clears throat> and begins to live a, a righteous life and uh, learns and grows in wisdom and knowledge, then he will naturally, as a result of that life, get uh, better consequences. So it's yes, it's a decree in one sense that changes, but it's it's a direct result of um, of what he does, uh, whether how Hashem works with regard to his judgment. I, I'm not in a position to say, but I would tend to liken it a little bit toward, you know, a person who eats junk food their whole life is going to get consequences by the time they're say 30 or 40 or 50. A person who eats healthy, a comparable person, everything else being the same, but a person who eats healthy food all their life, by the time they get to be 30, 40, 50, uh, it's generally, I think, pretty clear they will have better health and be getting better physical consequences. In that case, we wouldn't say, well, God decreed one for the other. We would simply say what they're getting is a natural consequence of the way that they live. And the righteous person, too, gets natural consequences, and the evil person gets natural consequences. Now, does God make a judgment along the way? God may intervene, you know, in both the righteous person's life and in an evil person's life, uh, as we will see in a verse that's coming up here. Um, but um, there's also just the natural sense of consequences. So, yes, I think things, a person definitely can change, uh, and we would hope that the evil person would see the, the error of their ways and, and move to, uh, uh, to a better approach. Um, Naomi, I'm hoping that answers your question. Let me know if it does not. Uh, Pamela, you mentioned a matter of receiving for oneself as opposed to receiving in order to benefit others. Yeah, there's a difference in outlook. Um, between the self-centered person or the person that um, you know sees uh, their, what they they have as a way to help other people. I mean, imagine for a moment the difference in outlook you would have in life if you saw every possession that you had 
and every bit of money that you had as a tool that God gave you in order to fulfill the life that he wants you to lead, which is the life of learning and wisdom and knowledge and character growth. That's a very different way to look at life than, you know, a lot of people do. You would certainly provide for yourself. I mean, you would provide food and clothing and shelter uh, and, and your needs. And if you had to work for a living, uh, you would take care of that. Uh, and you would be focused on, you know, what tools do I need for education and that kind of thing. But the other kinds of things you would probably see as somewhat superfluous or unnecessary. Uh, so it would be a very different outlook on life where you might see any extra wealth that you had over and above meeting your needs as just a way of benefiting other people, you know, a way of giving more charity or supporting, you know, worthwhile causes. So, Naomi, you've asked, will the single action of very good and needy charity, will that be helpful or should it be long-term and continuous? I think that both are true. Uh, certainly an act of, of charity is a good thing. Uh, and that certainly can be helpful um, as long as it's not insincere. And at the same time, uh, I mean, the, the best life would be to live that on a long-term and continuous basis. Um, there was one of the um, uh, commentaries, in fact, let me see if I can grab it, in uh, the Earth Scroll that I noticed that relates to that point. Um, it's, it's actually on a verse that we'll be coming up to, uh, verse 21, but uh, Rabbi Yochanan um, was trying to illustrate... Uh, a point with an example of someone who sinned with a prostitute and as he left her as this person who sinned with the prostitute left the prostitute he was approached by a beggar and he reasoned had the holy one blessed is he not intended to atone for my sin he would have not have sent me this opportunity to give charity in other words this guy figures ah I've sinned with this prostitute, now here comes this beggar, so if I give him charity, that's an opportunity to atone for my sin. And the Almighty tells him, wicked man, do not think thus. You should have learned from the wisdom of Solomon who says that hand-to-hand, -hand, or from hand-to-hand, -hand, evil will not be exonerated. So, to your, to your point, Naomi, yes, if, you, if a person gives a, 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 a you know, a, a contribution or an action of good and does an action of, of good and needy charity, yes, that can be a positive thing as long as the person is not doing it sort of like with, you know, uh, one hand in the cookie jar and the other hand uh, trying to do a good act to make up for that. So as long as it's, it's sincere and a good action, then yes, that will be helpful. And the more one does that, you know, obviously the more helpful it is, trains them in learning to think outside of themselves and look beyond themselves and at the same time it's obviously helpful to the people who need, uh, who need charity. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, let's move on to verse 20. So we are in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 20 and the verse reads the perverse of heart 
are an abomination to Hashem, but his desire is for those whose way is sincere or wholehearted. The perverse of heart are an abomination to Hashem, but his desire is for those whose way is sincere or wholehearted. So as always, I will ask you, what are the questions? What questions do we need to have answers to in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to teach us with this verse? The perverse of heart are an abomination to Hashem, but his desire is for those whose way is sincere, or we could say wholehearted. Okay, Naomi, you said both are related to heart and actions. Uh, well, we have heart in there, and then we have his desire is for those whose way is sincere, so that's a good question, and we'll have to see as we unfold this how those two come together. Certainly related to one's heart. Um, and let me establish... Um, well, let me ask a couple of other questions, uh, and then we'll establish some facts here. Um, we, we need to find out what perverse of heart means. And we need to know what an abomination to Hashem is. I mean, it sort of sounds like something really terrible, but why does King Solomon use that term? I mean, it's a pretty strong term to use. And then when it says his desire is for those whose way is sincere or wholehearted, well, what does it mean to be sincere or wholehearted? Um, and interestingly, I might ask this, if, why is Hashem even mentioned in this verse? I mean, if Proverbs is a book about practical everyday, practical everyday life, why mention Hashem in this particular verse? Um, I mean, in, in the terms of sort of Mishle in a practical sense, so uh, what does it matter whether something is an abomination to Hashem or his desire? What difference does that make to me in my everyday life? Um, and what's the verse really trying to teach us? So, Pamela, you said uh, perverse, is it going against normal values? Um, I think that it's going to be a little more broad than that, but that will get us, uh, I think, on a, on a starting path. And Naomi, you've asked, is it the desire or the commandment to all? Well, he says his desire is for those whose way is sincere, not his commandment which is an interesting thing um, because there's a difference between I mean a desire implies something that you want so this would suggest what Hashem wants is uh, is those whose way is sincere but it doesn't say he commands it uh, <clears throat> okay and thank you Pamela that helps uh, you're meaning, according to Torah, you mean normal. So is it against, going against Torah values? Yes, I think that's where we will, we will get to on that. Um, and Naomi, you said, can be avoidable. I'm not quite sure what you mean there. Uh, 
Maybe you can elaborate and, and give us a little more information on that. Let me establish just a couple of facts for us to work with. According to Rabbi Moskowitz, an abomination to Hashem means something very deep. Okay, and we'll soon see what that is. And about the word heart, when it says the perverse of heart, in the days when Mishle was written, it is my understanding that heart meant the mind. One's ability to think clearly. So someone who is perverse of mind would be someone who has incorrect ideas uh, and is unable or is unable to think through an idea. So the word suggests, the word perverse suggests a greater degree of this lack of ability to think correctly than an average person. I think it's talking about someone at an extreme. So the first half seems to be telling us that those whose minds are perverse, those who are focused on ideas that are at odds with reality, and that are actively seeking that life, they are an abomination to Hashem. Okay. Okay, and Naomi, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I assume you're saying that wrong desires can be, uh, can be avoided. Right. In this case, um, this is talking about, as I understand it, in the second half, Hashem's desire. Uh, so that Hashem's desire is for those whose way is sincere uh, or wholehearted. So we're looking at the first half saying that those whose minds are, are focused on ideas that are at odds with reality and, are, and are, that are actively seeking that life, they're an abomination to Hashem. Now, by abomination to Hashem, Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested that King Solomon is indicating consequences so great that they will result in the person's destruction. And we're not just talking here about someone who is, you know, unable to think clearly or who refuses to pursue wisdom and knowledge. And we have other descriptors for people like that. Here we're talking about someone who is perverse, which suggests to me he is actively pursuing incorrect action, actively pursuing that way of thinking. And that way of thinking and the incorrect actions that result from it lead the person further and further down the wrong path with more and more mistakes being made. And ultimately, those mistakes, if they aren't corrected, can lead to the person's destruction. So the destruction will become a natural consequence of someone who is perverse of heart. Okay, and that, that result, the pursuing of incorrect ideas and the actions that result in destruction is an abomination to Hashem. Because based on my understanding of Torah and Mishle, it is completely opposite of what God wants a person to do. God wants a person to pursue the true good and live, but the perverse is pursuing the opposite and is headed to destruction, both in this world and the next, although Mishle is focused on this world. Okay. Okay, and Pamela, thank you. Is it a warning that Hashem sets apart things for destruction as well as, as salvation? It's, it's the natural consequence of what the person is doing 
not a case that you know God necessarily decreed uh, that upon a person. Uh, God, from everything we know, from you know, that I'm aware of from Torah and Mishlei, God does not want a person to pursue that path. So, and and I think He doesn't. I mean, my understanding is He doesn't want them to pursue that path because He does not want them to face destruction. Uh, I mean, he, God loves His creation, uh, and it's my understanding He does not want people to end up going down an evil path or uh, or a negative path. Interestingly, uh, many people focus a lot of attention on the next world. <clears throat> but you'll notice that the written Torah says almost nothing about the world to come. And I will suggest to you that's because our job here is to be focused here, not there. When, when someone gets focused on the world to come, it's very easy to get into a mindset that all my problems will be solved and everything will be wonderful and so you spend all your time focusing on that instead of dealing with the problems that you have right now and that becomes an excuse to avoid dealing with things like the troublesome character traits that I have in myself that I just don't want to look at or that I don't want to work on because it's much easier to just sort of focus and pine for a uh, one day there will be pie in the sky kind of fantasy. But I'll suggest to you that from a Torah standpoint, our job is here and now. And the interesting thing is that by doing what the Torah recommends, so that you can have the best life here, those actions also prepare you for the next life. In other words, it's not one or the other. All we really have is the present moment. And by focusing on that and doing what we can to learn and grow and improve ourselves, we are preparing for the next life. So I will suggest to you the first half of the verse is pointing out that the perverse are headed down a destructive road and that is not Hashem's intent for them. At the same time, God gave man free will, so people have the opportunity to choose. Okay. Okay, let me pause there. Uh, Pamela, you mentioned deliverance from Egypt was salvation for them. Yes, it was. And that was a miraculous uh, situation uh, you know, specific to the Jewish people at that time. Here in this verse, I think King Solomon is making a general statement about um, the perverse of heart, you know, Jew and Gentile probably alike being an abomination to Hashem. Okay, any questions on the first half? Okay, let's talk about the second half. The second half is saying that Hashem's desire is for those whose way is sincere or wholehearted. Now, sincere or wholehearted would seem to follow the definition that we discussed in the last verse. That is, it means that he understands the person understands correct ideas and his place in the world. He sees the reality of the systems that God created, and he sees his place in those. His desires are in line with God's desires because his desires are in line in accordance with reality, which was created by God. So the person's mind 
is consistent with the reality of the world as created by God. So his mind analyzes and chooses that which is best in each situation, the best being that which is consistent with reality and the systems that God created, taking into account all of the known factors. Because, I mean, after all, what, can, what else can, can we do except operate on the basis of what we know and what we understand? So, that all makes sense, but I could say, well, doesn't that seem a little bit obvious? I mean, is there anything new here that King Solomon is really trying to get across? And one possibility, uh, as we analyze Mishlei, is that we might have thought that uh, consequences are consequences. And now Shem doesn't really care what we do one way or the other. I mean, he set up the systems, and we can just operate within them or not, at our own choosing, and he really doesn't care. I mean, we could have thought that. I mean, we've looked at systems, and we've said, God created these systems, and there are consequences if you follow them, consequences if you don't follow them. Uh, but we could have just said, okay, he set up the system, and that's that. But this verse shows that the life of Mishlei the life of Proverbs, the sincere or wholehearted life, is the life that God wants a person to have. And it also points out that the life of the wicked, the life of perverse thinking, is an abomination to God. It's clearly not what God wants for man. And it will clearly lead to destruction. So why does that make a difference? I mean, why do I need to know that this is the life that Hashem wants man to live? I will suggest that the reason may be psychological. Many times in religious communities and in religious discussions, we hear people saying something like, I just want to do the will of God, as if that will is something very specific to them, like, I should move to Atlanta and be a social worker or I should go to medical school. Uh, I went to a religious college, and at that religious college, this kind of thing happened a lot. Kids would enter in as freshmen, and they're seeking God's will for their lives. And they go through their freshman year, and they get to their sophomore year, and they're praying, and they're still seeking God's will for their lives. And by the time they get to be juniors, this is becoming a real issue. I mean, God, I really want to know what your will is for my life. And by the time they get to be a senior, you know, this can almost become a frantic thing. I mean, God, I still don't know what your will is for my life, and I really want to do it. And in these kinds of cases, God's will is seen as something, you know, uh, delivered like in a FedEx envelope from heaven, announcing you should go be a doctor, or you should go be a lawyer, or you should go do uh, this or that in this or that place. I will suggest to you that that's not the way it works. That we don't get FedEx envelopes from heaven. That God's will is that we learn and we grow and we rationally analyze situations and that we make wise decisions based on consequences. And that's about how we live our lives. It's not about a single event or career decision. So I'll suggest that this verse is clearly telling us that 
not only is the life of Mishle, the life of Proverbs, the life of Musser and character development and growth, the preferred life because it results in the best consequences and outcomes in life, even though it does, it also is the life that Hashem wants us to live. Those with, are, who are perverse of heart are headed down a destructive path, not because God is going to come along with a stick and whack them, but because the natural consequences of their own actions are going to lead to their destruction. And that's a result that God doesn't want. So in other words, we could say, as we've alluded before, it's an abomination for, to Hashem for him to have to watch his creation destroy itself. By contrast, the life that God does want a man or a woman to follow is the life of learning and growth and character development and wisdom and insight. And that not only leads to the best life here on the planet, but it's also Hashem's desire for us. Does that make sense? Or are there any questions about that? Okay, I will take no response as a yes. So now I would like to do something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to skip over a verse. And the reason I'm going to skip over the verse is because it's difficult enough and presented enough challenges that, first of all, we won't cover it adequately in the time we have left, and second, um, I was left at the end with questions that I could not answer, and I have asked Rabbi Moskowitz to take a look at the verse, and he is going to uh, get back to me, hopefully by our class next week, uh, with his thoughts about it, and we'll combine those with, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at a number of different things, and what I'll probably do at that point uh, perhaps is take you down the path of reasoning that I went and share with you the challenges that I found along the way. So I'd like to jump over uh, to chapter uh, 11, verse 22. Skip over one verse, uh, because I think we can cover this one in the time that we have left. Uh, it's a very interesting, different subject. It says, uh, again, this is Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. And it says, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman from whom sense has departed. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, or a pig's snout, so is a beautiful woman from whom sense has departed. So, any questions you'd want to ask about that verse? As a ring of gold in a pig's nose, so is a beautiful woman from whom sense has departed. What kind of questions does that rather colorful metaphor bring to mind? A colorful allegory, colorful picture. Okay, Pamela, you said something attractive in a NAF setting. I'm sorry, I do not know the word NAF. That's one I'm not familiar with. Um, and Naomi, you've said, is a woman, uh, a woman looks beautiful with rings only, and why is a ring mentioned? Okay, good. Good point. Uh, yeah, Pamela, I wondered if it was UK slang. Does that mean good or bad? 
That is NAF. Is it uh, in, a, in a positive setting or a negative setting? Bad setting. Okay, something attractive in a bad setting. Okay, good points. Uh, questions I might add to that. I mean, why, what is King Solomon really getting at when he talks about a ring of gold and a pig's nose? Um, and why is he comparing a beautiful woman whose sense has departed with that? It's kind of an odd comparison. Uh, and what does it mean that someone's sense has departed? And, you know, at the end of all this, what is King Solomon trying to get at here? I mean, this is rather weird comparison and juxtaposition. So let me ask a question that I think opens up a possibility for an answer. What happens when you put a ring of gold in a pig's nose? I mean, literally. You put a ring of gold in a pig's nose. Does it enhance the pig, or does it bring down the jewelry? What do you think? Does a ring of gold in, in a pig's nose enhance the pig, or just degrade the jewelry? Okay, Pamela, it's a waste. Terry and Laurie, I'm assuming you mean degrades the gold. Yep, absolutely. Brings down the gold, goes down the drain. You're absolutely right. There are some things that simply don't go together because they don't work. The gold does not enhance the swine. All it does is brings down the gold. The gold ornament needs to be put on someone or something that is already pretty. Now, if you combine a beautiful woman with the attribute of no sense, does it enhance the lack of sense or does it bring down the beautiful woman? Okay, and I hope I'm reading your comments in the right order, but, uh, yep, it'll never be an attraction, and it'll be hidden in the mud. Okay, Naomi, good. And, yeah, Terry and Lori, beauty without sense is worthless. So, what we seem to see from this is that the lack of sense, the beauty of the woman doesn't enhance the lack of sense, it just brings down the beautiful woman. So we see that you can't make up the lack of one thing by an abundance of another thing. The most beautiful gold in the world will not make a pig look good. The fact that a woman looks beautiful will not make up for the fact that she has no sense. The pig with the gold will still be viewed as a pig, and a beautiful woman who has no sense will still be seen as foolish regardless of her beauty. And I'd like to read you um, the Malbum on this. His commentary is really, I think, good and really gets to this issue. Uh, I'm reading from Feldheim's book, uh, Malbum on Michelet, and he writes on this verse, not only does a gold ring add no beauty to a swine, but it even becomes repulsive in the context of the ugliness and filth of its wearer. Similarly, a beautiful woman is affected even in her physical charm 
by ugly traits of personality. All that is conveyed by the term ta'am, which means taste or flavor, to express the aura of personality, behavior, mannerisms, and conversation, which reflect the inner quality of the soul. In the context of an unpleasant character, even beauty is distorted and vulgar. Metaphorically, this suggests the way in which intellectual grace and vigor is spoiled or becomes ugly when it is coupled with a corrupt character. So you can't make the inside better by putting something on the outside. And if the, the inside, if the woman is foolish, her physical beauty isn't going to make up for that. And similarly, if you've got a pig that looks like a pig, putting a gold ring on it or gold jewelry on it isn't going to improve that. Um, and you're right, Pamela, the, foolish, the beauty will be rejected when the foolish part manifests itself. If the person just stands there and looks beautiful, everyone will look at the beauty and will probably project, you know, beautiful characteristics onto that person. They'll think, oh, she's probably very kind and generous and you know, thoughtful and well-mannered and polite and so forth. But if she opens her mouth and she's vulgar, then immediately the, the fantasy of the beauty that the, the viewers had will be shattered. And they will see what she's really like and that the inner person is not matching the beauty on the outside. So the subject seems to be that adornments in this case, a ring of gold or physical beauty can be considered to be an adornment, cannot overcome the core truth about the individual. In this case, a pig is a pig, or and a person with no sense is still foolish, even if they happen to be physically beautiful. Okay? So, that also, I think, would probably teach us that we need to look on the inside when we're um, dealing with people and remember that the outside is an adornment but the true character and the true measure uh, of a person is on the inside. Any questions about that? Okay, in that case we will stop here for the evening.